Hello and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2019 Carmel Conference. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this podcast is Leo Hanian, a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. The title of his talk is The Economic Policies of the 2020 Democratic Presidential Candidates, and it was recorded on May 17, 2019. I'm uh, delighted I can, um, I can spend some time with you today. Um, so the topic I'll be talking about is one that, um, that I've become interested in. Um, one reason being that, that next year really could be a, a transformational year in the, in the history of our country in terms of, in terms of who is elected and the direction in which uh, the country goes uh, under, the, under their leadership. Um, so that's kind of what brought me to, to think about these issues. And I'm, I'm happy to have the opportunity to share these ideas with you. Um, now, I'll start out by saying that in, in a typical election year, President Trump would very easily win because economic performance has been so good. Uh, so since the 2016 election, Economic growth has been almost a full percentage point above economic growth under President Obama, 3.1% under Trump, 2.2% under President Obama, and I made that calculation after I took out just the awful year of 2009. Uh, so, so that 2.2% for Obama does not count 2009, which would take it down even lower. The country has the lowest unemployment rate we've seen since 1969 at 3.6%. Productivity growth, which was about 0.6% under President Obama. And this is the growth rate in inflation-adjusted output per worker. That was about 0.6% under President Obama. It's now 2%, uh, which is just remarkably good news because productivity growth is really the most fundamental source of increases in our long-run living standards. Um, and inflation is about 1.6%. So this is really among the best-performing economies in, in decades. Uh, and voters, not surprisingly, take into account economic factors significantly when they cast ballots. A number of economists have statistically analyzed how economic performance translates into the ballot box, and the prediction that comes out of that research shows that if the election was to happen today, taking into account just the economy, Trump would win 54% to 46%. But now, this is not a typical election year. These are not typical times. Um, the president has an approval rating of about 43%. And to give you some comparisons, I have the numbers at the exact same time at their presidency for Obama and George W. Bush and Bill Clinton. And Obama presided over really just a moribund economy throughout his two terms. And at this stage of presidency, Obama's approval rating was about 50%, despite the fact the economic growth was not nearly as good two and a half years into his presidency. George W. Bush had an approval rating of 66% with an economy that was not as good as today. Bill Clinton had an approval rating of 56%. He had the good fortune of being president during the time when Silicon Valley was making innovations and advances like nobody's business, um, and a 56% approval rating, despite the fact that President Clinton was dealing with a number of personal issues such as whitewater, 
Paula Jones, uh, you all remember Monica Lewinsky, and Bill and Hillary were smart enough to figure out Airbnb before Airbnb figured out Airbnb uh, and, and the rental of the Lincoln bedroom um, on a nightly basis. Um, so that gives you some sense of where President Trump's approval is and, and where it potentially could be. I would say just on the basis of economic factors, it should be probably somewhere in the 60s. Um, and the approval rating right now suggests the possibility he's going to have a difficult time next, uh, next November. Um, so that brings us to the, 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 the policies of those running for president and the Democratic Party. And um, if I had to give you a one-liner for where those policies are going, I would call it a race to the left. So I've listed uh, the five leading presidential candidates within the Democratic Party. So those, uh, and, then, and this is an order currently of popularity based on polls. So uh, it's Joe Biden, uh, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, our own Kamala Harris, and Pete Buttigieg, who is the mayor of South Bend, Indiana. And most polls show most or all of these candidates beating Trump if the election was to be held today. Now, the election is not going to be held today. It's not for another year and a half. And polls are highly imperfect. But I think it gives you a sense of some of the difficulties or challenges that the president may face and what types of policies we should think about and worry about you know, should he, should he not win. Um, now, in terms of this race to the left, uh, there have been enormous changes within the Democratic Party over time. Just back to 2016, there was one leading candidate who I and I think virtually everyone else would consider to be far left, and that was Bernie Sanders. In 2020, or actually in 2019, not even four years later, four of the five leading candidates are far left, everyone except Biden. Uh, the Democratic Party platform has shifted enormously uh, over these last three years. The longtime leaders of the Democratic Party, so, so people such as uh, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, Dianne Feinstein, at some level no longer really are the leaders of that party. And to go a little bit beyond that, I think at some level they've lost control of that party. And the policy agenda coming out of the Democratic Party now is being set by a very different group of, of Democrats. And, and I'll talk about that in, in just a couple of slides in detail. Now, when we talk about how the Democratic Party has evolved over time, there's really two components that I see. One is a long-run component in which Democrats have been becoming much more liberal over time. So I've been tracking a poll, or I've been doing research on a poll that, that looks at people self-reported where they stand within the Democratic Party uh, for the last 25 years. And if we go back to 1994, so this in the middle of Bill Clinton's first term, 25% of Democrats identified themselves as being politically liberal. 25% identified as being conservative, and 50% were moderate. In other words, 75% were moderate or conservative. Today, 51% of Democrats self-identify as liberal. Just 9% identify as conservative. So we've gone from a, a situation over 25 years, roughly even numbers of those in the Democratic Party were conservative versus liberal. And today, it's off by about a factor of six. 
changed. So there's been this long-run evolution in Democratic Party thinking towards becoming more politically liberal. Now, there's also been a very sharp change in the last couple of years that I call the Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton effect. So in 2016, the Democratic National Party really anointed Hillary as the candidate. There was, a lot, there was really groupthink that she was the person as Secretary of State as having run against Barack Obama in 2008 as being involved significantly in government for 25 years, she was the person. And out of nowhere comes Bernie Sanders, and I mean out of nowhere came Bernie Sanders. But Bernie Sanders came out of nowhere to win nearly 1,900 Democratic delegates. He had enormous support from young voters, about 72% to roughly 25% for Hillary. And Sanders, identifies himself clearly as a socialist, and he talks about his policies as socialist policies in terms of very high tax rates, particularly on high earners, nationalized health care with no private health insurance, extremely high minimum wages, substantial trade restrictions to aid unions. This is what really seemed to capture and energize the Democratic base, not so much Hillary. It turned out Hillary was a candidate that didn't really energize people. It didn't, she, she didn't really excite voters. And as Sanders gained traction, Hillary was forced to pivot left on literally every issue, ranging from the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which at one time she strongly favored, uh, and then suddenly she was against that, to regulation of financial intermediation. Wherever Sanders went, Hillary followed. And at this point, Sanders not only substantially strengthened the far left of the Democratic Party, but Hillary indirectly strengthened the far left of the Democratic Party by weakening the middle enormously. And today, much of the Democratic Party is either disillusioned with centrists or looks to Hillary and says, and perhaps even former President Obama, and says, you're in the past. Sanders et al. are the people of the future. That's the future of this party. So that's my take on how we got where we are today in terms of the Democratic Party. Now, I mentioned a moment ago that people such as Nancy Pelosi and Dianne Feinstein, Chuck Schumer, who have been in elected office in the Democratic Party for decades, they're no, no longer really leading the party. So who is leading the party? It's a very, very different demographic. People who are very young, people who describe themselves as being socialist, and people who are incredibly critical of our country and its history. Uh, and party leaders include uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I'm sorry, I'm now just noticing my typo. It's not Ocasio-Cortez, but Ocasio-Cortez, so I'll just call her AOC. And uh, Ilan Omar, who's in the house from uh, Minnesota and who's um, quite anti-Israel. Um, Ocasio-Cortez is 29, uh, Ilhan Omar is late 30s. Um, this is really where is the energy and I think the leadership in the Democratic Party is coming from now. Uh, this relatively small group has displaced the likes of Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and Dianne Feinstein, um, despite the fact that this young group is very small. Three quarters of congressional Democrats are 50 years or older. 
but they've really lost control of the party. They've really, they're really no longer defining where the party's going. And this agenda is being set by a group of what I'll call young socialists. And whoever is going to be the Democratic Party nominee next November is really going to have to address the concerns that this group has or may actually really support what these people have to say. And unfortunately, the people that I'm talking about, Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar, other young socialists, they're not only critical of the United States, but they're just factually wrong. And I'm going to give you here some quotes from Ocasio-Cortez and others that, that really worry me because we can't make good decisions if we can't agree what the facts are, what the basis of knowledge is, and where we are. And there just really is no, there is no agreement, and in large part because these folks are just flat out wrong. So Ocasio-Cortez has said, capitalism is irredeemable. The status quo is garbage. She said this within the last, the last two months. Now, what is capitalism? It's freedom. It's the free ability to buy goods and services from those whom you would like to buy goods and services from and to sell it to people who you would like to. That's, that's capitalism. That's not garbage, in my opinion. The US was not capitalist, the birth of this country. That's just flat out wrong. The birth of this country, going back to Jamestown, was perhaps the greatest entrepreneurial experiment the world's ever seen. History courses often talk about people fleeing religious persecution, and there's certainly some truth to that. But for every individual who came to this country to avoid religious persecution, another nine came to make their riches in an incredibly high-risk adventure, most of which failed. The birth of this country was an enormously amazing entrepreneurial experiment um, that, that provided the foundation of where we are today. Capitalism will not always exist in the world. My generation, meaning Ocasio-Cortez, has never seen prosperity. So these really are just, just factually wrong statements. And it's very difficult to make economic policies if we don't agree on what the facts are. And there are issues within the Democratic Party because this is also a group that doesn't really like to compromise. So very recently, Ocasio-Cortez said, for those of you who don't tow the party line, that is what I want to do, if you vote with the GFP, your, if, if you vote with the GOP, your name will be on a list. So harkens back to something like, uh, something like McCarthyism. Now, within the Democratic Party, centrists are concerned. So Democratic Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia recently said, I worry about the perception that people have that the Democratic Party has gone completely off the rails. And now, whether you think about it's gone off the rails or not, there are a set of economic policies that are being broadly supported by those who've identified the five leading Democratic um, presidential contenders um, that are sharply different than the policies that you would ever have imagined coming out of either, either political party. Um, Almost all, with the exception of Joe Biden, all the candidates support was called the Green New Deal. And this is really um, uh, not so much a concrete policy proposal, but really 
a theme within the Democratic Party, uh, ranging from making the country 100% renewable in terms of energy within 10 years, which simply just can't be done. I, I have not come across a scientist who said this is, really, this is feasible. Um, it would involve retrofitting every building in the country. Um, now, some buildings, particularly those that have been built in the last 10 or 15 years at very high energy standards, don't need to be retrofitted. But every building would be retrofitted. Imagine trying to find somebody to do your home improvement project when we're retrofitting every office building in this country. Um, and it goes beyond energy issues. Uh, part of the Green New Deal manifesto includes the idea that for those who are unable to work or who don't want to work, we're going to provide you with uh, a decent living and um, a high level of consumption. So this is something that you just would have never seen out of either party. You would have never seen it from Barack Obama. Uh, Obama has been critical of the Green New Deal. Um, how would this ever get paid for? Well, I think you know how it would be paid for. Tax hikes, enormous tax hikes on top earners, substantial increases taxes on corporations, uh, taxes on wealth. I'll talk a little bit more about those in a few minutes. Um, what else does this set of politicians want to do? Medicare for all. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, Medicare for all, which, which can mean different things to different people. The most destructive of which is coming from Sanders and Warren and Harris, which would eliminate private health insurance. Now, Sanders often likes to look at Europe for his ideas. Now, Europe has plenty of problems in their delivery of health care, including the fact that if, you want, if you're thinking about a hip replacement and a knee replacement, get ready to wait two years for that. But not even in Europe have they eliminated private health insurance. So Sanders et al. would like to take us down a road that really has never been, has never been traveled before. Uh, $15 an hour minimum wage. Uh, would essentially shut down opportunities for young people and the most inexperienced people. Um, substantially higher business regulation, particularly in finance. Um, everyone wants to, uh, all of the candidates would like to have free college. I say free in quote marks because as we know in economics, nothing is free. Um, so that's a, that's a set, that's a set of, of policy goals that, that almost all of these candidates would like. And um, so now let me talk a little bit more about the specifics of, of each candidate. And, and I'm going to start out with Sanders because he really has been the lightning rod for a lot of what's going on in the Democratic Party. Um, so Sanders calls himself a socialist without apology. And, and I'm going to call him an uninformed socialist, one who just doesn't really know what the facts are. Um, 30 years ago, Sanders lauded the Soviet Union. He visited there in 1990. He saw that he thought it was such a great place. It was so great that it collapsed one year later. Um, he's lauded Fidel Castro. Uh, he refuses to denounce Maduro in Venezuela. Despite the fact that the United Nations released a report, over a 100-page report, that concluded that under Maduro, there are great crimes against humanity being committed in Venezuela. Uh, and Sanders refuses to condemn Maduro. Um, and when we think about 
as a, as a civilized society, we value civil rights, personal rights, human rights, due process, democratic representation. Um, you know, these factual statements about Sanders really has me worried about him. Um, here's a couple of his quotes. Morally and economically, our nation can't thrive when so few have so much and so many have so little. All right, well, this is just flat out factually wrong. In the next slide, I'll tell you why. Uh, we can learn much from socialist countries like Denmark and Sweden. And this is also factually wrong. And the slide after the next one will tell you why. Um, so Bernie gets the facts wrong. Here's what the facts are. The U.S. has the highest tax progressivity in the world. Tax progressivity means how much marginal tax rates rise as income rises. So marginal tax rates for the highest earners are higher than marginal tax rates for low earners. There's no country in the world that has a, highest, that has a higher schedule of tax progressivity than the United States. Fact, the U.S. redistributes a greater percentage of income than any other country but France. A third fact, the bottom 10 percentile, the bottom 10 percentile of earners in the United States, they consume about the same amount as a median French household. Okay, so when he says the U.S. can't thrive when so many have so little, I really don't know what he's referring to. What else does Bernie get wrong? Well, he always is talking about countries like Denmark and Sweden, as is Ocasio-Cortez, as are many others than the Democratic Party. Well, I think Bernie's been asleep for a while because socialism in Sweden and Denmark ended in 1992. There's no one in those countries that won't say those experiments were just abject failures. In fact, in Sweden, the socialist experiment went so wrong that they suffered private sector job loss that would have been equivalent to the U.S. losing about 20 million private sector jobs in three years. That's what happened in Sweden. That's Bernie's socialist utopia. And because the people living in Denmark and Sweden were so fed up with their lives under socialism, that in the last 25 years, there's just been remarkable free economic reforms. And in fact, when Sanders was quoted, uh, as, as I indicate here at the top of the slide, the Danish prime minister came out and said, I'll make one thing clear. Denmark is far from a socialist planned economy. We are a market economy. Now, I think Bernie would be shocked to know the real truth about the Scandinavian economies. Um, at Hoover, we've been promoting a flat tax for decades. Well, it exists in the world, not here in the United States, but exists in Sweden and Denmark. Um, there are not only school vouchers in these countries, because these countries know that competition among schools leads to better learning outcomes, but they're actually for-profit K through 12 schools. Now, both of these items, I think, would be anathema to Sanders and others, other socialists in this country. Now, if Bernie found out about this, I think he would be incredulous. I think his reaction would be something like the following. You, you say, what? Flat tax? For-profit schools? 
That can't be. Now, it's not just a flat tax and for-profit schools. There's very little business regulation in these countries because they're small countries. And if they're going to succeed economically, they have to be remarkably competitive. And only the most sensible and efficient regulation can you survive and be competitive. And again, as small countries, they have to be competitive. So these economies are in the process of whittling their corporate income tax rate down to 20%. Again, this would be anathema for Bernie Sanders. Now, upon learning this, I think Bernie's reaction would be somewhat more of just saying, this is an outrage. <laughs> and, uh, now, and it just keeps going. There's no minimum wage in these countries. Um, and despite Bernie thinking that people get free health care, they don't. There are very substantial medical co-pays in these countries. And there's ongoing privatization of health care in these countries um, to cover costs and to provide health care more efficiently. So I'm thinking at this point, Bernie's reaction would be something like, Dear Lord, please give me the strength to accept the fact that those Scandinavian countries are not the socialist utopias that I thought they were. Um, and again, if we don't have a common understanding of what the facts are, we can't have informed and principled discussions about economic policies. And a very fundamental issue that's going on right now here in this country within the Democratic Party is that they are just factually mistaken on a number of important points. Okay, so let me come to Joe Biden, who is um, the least far left of any, but Biden is, is drifting left. And I would call Biden somewhat of a populist. Okay, so, so Biden talks a lot about restoring the middle class. How would he like to do that? Adopting free college, tripling the child tax credit. How would he pay for this? Much higher taxes on capital income. These are some of the reasons why I say he seems to me like a populist. Whereas before, he never supported a $15 an hour minimum wage. And in fact, Alan Kruger, who was um, the chief economist uh, for President Obama and Vice President Biden, uh, told them privately that a $15 minimum wage could be a disaster for this country. Not, not, not adjusting the minimum wage by a dollar an hour, but up to $15 an hour, it could be a disaster. But Biden now supports the $15 an hour minimum wage because politically it's the expedient thing to do. This is, this is what the Democratic Party wants now, and Biden's going to have to deliver at least some of what the left wing of the Democratic Party wants. Um, he has not come out with a health care proposal. I suspect it'll be something like Medicare for all. Uh, I really hope that includes a private health insurance and not eliminating private health insurance like Sanders wants to do in Kamala Harris. Now, he does not support the Green New Deal. He supports the Paris Accord, which we left. And since he has not supported the, the Green New Deal, he's been substantially criticized within the party by AOC and others. So we'll see what happens with this. We'll see how, how costly this is to him. He understands the infeasibility of the Green New Deal and that from a fiscal point of view is just a non-starter. He knows that. Uh, and we'll see how long he can push back on that. And how about our own Kamala Harris? Um, so I would call her you know, very, very similar to Sanders. 
Yes on Green New Deal. Yes on Medicare for All. Yes on big tax hikes. Yes on the $15 uh, an hour minimum wage. As Kamala is trying to distinguish herself from others in a field with, you know, now 24 candidates um, and five or six ones that I think are probably serious, she wants to eliminate the right to work law. So the right to work law is known as Taft-Hartley. It was passed in 1946, which simply allowed states the right to outlaw the union shop. The right to outlaw the union shop. She says she would use an executive order to eliminate right to work law in order to embrace and enhance unions. Uh, she's also on record saying she wants reparations for descendants of slavery. Um, and I think one of her worst um, economic ideas, um, eliminating right to work law would be a, an awful economic idea, just from the standpoint of freedom. Again, capitalism means being able to buy and sell to whom we want to, not having to join a particular club in order to get a job, the club being in that case the union. But she also wants to put forward a housing tax credit if your rent exceeds 30%. Now this is a really a terrible economic idea because it subsidizes demand. We already have excess demand for housing, particularly in our wonderful state of California, where uh, the average price of a home in the city of San Francisco, and if you go on Zillow and you look up a house in, in San Francisco for 1.4 million, you're gonna see a fixer at that price range. So we already have excess demand for housing. She will create more demand for housing by subsidizing people who spend a lot on housing. We need to expand supply of housing. We don't need to expand demand anymore. This brings us to Elizabeth Warren. Um, in some ways, maybe the most uh, economically dangerous candidate that I've looked at. Um, I know that she's very well-meaning, um, but her, her economic ideas are really very, very damaging. Um, she wants to put a wealth tax. Uh, now, this would affect relatively few people, but if you think of a wealth tax of 1% to 3%, and if you think of wealth invested in treasuries or any asset earning under 3%, um, you will have a huge bomb go off in capital markets and investment in this country. Um, she also is very dangerous in my eyes as an economist because she wants to force corporations not to simply run their businesses in order to satisfy their stakeholders, who are their customers and their shareholders, but corporations must make a, quote, positive impact on society. Now, what does that mean? I don't exactly know, but regulating corporations to do the bidding of politicians, I guarantee you, is not the road to economic success. She also, put, she also wants to put interest rate controls on credit cards. She thinks this will help poor people by capping their payments. Guess what's gonna happen? Those poor people aren't gonna have credit cards. So this is the extent to which I say, yes, she may very well be well-meaning, but she does not understand how economies work. Uh, and I worry about the possibility of having someone as president who simply doesn't have, I'm sorry to say this, the slightest clue of how, of how economies work. Um, 
How about Pete Buttigieg? So he, very young guy, 39 years old. He's the mayor of South Bend, Indiana. He kind of came out of nowhere. Um, now, he was a, actually a business consultant for McKinsey. So from that standpoint, I think, well, maybe he actually has some common sense. Um, most of his, most of his economic policies uh, are not um, so different. I would say he certainly seems less extreme than Sanders. Uh, he uh, he is not he has not supported Medicare for all and eliminate private health care. He thinks we should keep private health care. So for that little tidbit, I'm, I'm thankful. Um, but he also supports higher taxes, higher wealth taxes, higher estate taxes, $15 a minimum wage. I mean, the $15 hour minimum wage now is really just sort of the union card within the Democratic Party. Unfortunately, it's a card that will destroy jobs for, for, for our young people. Now, in terms of differentiating himself, he wants to expand the Supreme Court to 15 justices. He wants to eliminate the Electoral College. So at some level, those two last red bullet points strike me a little bit as sour grapes, since the Democratic Party is not really getting what they want uh, with this. Uh, but that is, uh, that is Batigic. So let me just take the last couple of minutes before I turn to questions and talk about, you know, what, just broadly, what we need to address um, and how we might want to address that. So one of the factors that Sanders has made so much political hay out of is he talks time and again about the elites and a rigged system. The elites get things done that you and I can't get done. The elites have connect, political connections that you and I simply don't have. Sanders will say, I'm the person who's gonna fight against the elites in a rigged system. Well, I'm glad he's thinking that way. Um, I'm, I'm not glad the way he's thinking about that because how do we fight an elite and rigged system? With markets. You know, markets, going back to Adam Smith, and, and if you've heard about Adam Smith's invisible hand, markets protect everyone. Markets protect everyone. Government protects elites who support politicians. So how do we get away from elites and rig system? Expanding markets, not regulating and taxing markets. And at Hoover, we're doing a lot to advance these ideas. So we have a number of people working on the ideas of reducing, hopefully eliminating subsidies. So that's a great example of elites in a rigged system. Taxes, well, you know, for over 30 years, we've been advancing the idea of a flat tax and taking out a lot of preferential tax treatment and tax deductions. And I know that Rick Hanacek spoke this morning and uh, Rick is one of the, the finest researchers and economists of education anywhere in the world. So I know you, you heard about Rick's research in K through 12 education. But here's a great example of elites in a rigged system. So politicians and unions block virtually every sensible education reform. Merit-based pay, is that a crazy idea? It is in K through 12 education. There's hardly any merit-based pay. Reforming seniority rules, teacher tenure rules that make it virtually impossible to dismiss a poorly performing teacher. Rick probably talked to you about the enormous economic growth that would occur in this country if we could dismiss the bottom performing teachers, the bottom performing 5% of teachers. Again, markets is the answer here. 
Another issue I think we need to address are environmental concerns. Virtually everybody under 40 is worried about carbon emissions. And whereas the science is probably highly imperfect in terms of what will happen in the future regarding carbon emissions, um, you know, Secretary George Shultz has taken a lead in, I think, was a very common sense view. We're not sure. Let's take out an insurance policy and let's try to reduce carbon by having a revenue neutral carbon tax. So we, car we tax carbon tax emissions, but it doesn't go to the government. The revenues return to individuals. Uh, and that's been so successful, that's been signed on to over 3,300 economists. Um, and this will be so much better than the energy subsidies we've had going forward. For 40 and 50 years, we've been subsidizing wind and solar technologies. Have they replaced fossil fuels? No, they haven't. Let there be, a, let there be an even playing field where all sorts of new technologies might emerge. But the big issue is, is not the United States. We emit 12% of the world's carbon, partially because we've cut a lot of carbon emissions. The big emitters are China and India, 35% of global carbon emissions. Um, we need to negotiate with them. That's not part of the Green New Deal. Um, and let me just leave you, leave you with this idea. I've said throughout my talk that we have to have a common set of facts and knowledge that forms the basis of our policy discussions. And we simply don't have that. And one of the reasons is because many Americans, particularly young Americans, are just uninformed. They simply don't know what our economic system is or what our history is. And so a great American once said, our priority is educating our youth in the science of American government. What's more pressing than communicating this to the future guardians of the liberties of this country? That was George Washington. I think these words are more important today than they've ever been. So let me stop here. Thank you very much. And I'm happy to take uh, questions and comments. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, Podbean, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.